thank you, Steve. Uh, if you have your Bibles, keep them open there in Ephesians, where we're going to spend uh, the majority of our time today. And uh, appreciate you following along with us in the Word of God this morning. The Bible is quite clear throughout it. Uh, you are not a good guide for your life. For instance, left to myself, I don't make the best decisions for me or those around me. In fact, if I only did what I wanted to do or, or felt like doing all the time, our lives would be worse off for it, much worse. And one of the ways the Bible is true in this is that I've been noticing that there are few things that human beings do that we never regret. They're always good for us. But to show how stained by sin we are, we actually fight against ourselves and make it really hard on us to do those things. For instance, I've never heard one time anyone regret just slowing down, just taking stuff out of their schedule and freeing up margin in their life. But boy, do we fight against that, don't we? I've never heard anyone regret minimalizing, just getting rid of a bunch of stuff and trying, stop trying to find happiness in material things. But man, that next commercial, the next sale, we're rushing to go get that next thing that we don't need. Right? Barring injury, no one's ever said, I took the time today to exercise, and boy, do I really regret it. I wish I hadn't taken care of my body today. But how hard is it to actually start the workout? Right? Because we fight against this. I've never heard someone say, I spent time in God's word this morning. I prayed, and man, what a waste. I just got nothing out of it. I've never heard that. But boy, I bet if we did a show of hands this morning, we're honest, a lot of us would admit it's a struggle to even prioritize that, even though we need it and never regret it. It's past Thursday morning. I had a big day ahead. Our, our air conditioning went out this last week, and so I was having to rush back and forth between the office and the house to meet repair guys. There's a couple of people I need to check on, but the biggest thing I needed to do on Thursday was I needed to write this sermon. And my morning on that Thursday morning hadn't gone as I planned. I was already running a little bit behind, and I was getting ready to leave, and I noticed just a couple of messes in the house that I just couldn't feel right about leaving behind. My wife's pregnant. We have no air conditioning. I just didn't feel right leaving the house messy while I ran off to an air-conditioned office. Right? It was just a kind of a guilt thing. And so I'm trying to clean things up as fast as I can before I bolt out the door and our littlest, our five-year-old Gemma comes up to me. And she says, Daddy, will you run through the sprinkler with me? Now, one of the ways that, that we beat the heat this week is, is to turn on this little lawn sprinkler we've got. And they just, then the girls just went running through it. And as you know, it, it was hot this week. Right? But this was the one morning of the entire week that was overcast and the heat hadn't yet come. It was like 68 degrees and cloudy and windy. And Jim had already asked her sister Hattie and Hattie was smart enough to say no because it wasn't warm enough yet. And so Jim came to me. Now I had many reasons to say no. Right? It was cold. I was already dressed and ready to, to go to work. I was behind. It was past time for me to go. And so I used all those reasons. I told her, no, I'm just not going to do that today. And she was crushed. And so I told myself, I couldn't worry about that. You know, I'm always going to disappoint them in some way. There's just too much to do. Get back to your task. And as I went back to my task, the Holy Spirit spoke. And it was something like this. So let me get this straight. You can't play with your daughter because you have to go write a Father's Day sermon. Which just wasn't cool, Holy Spirit. It's just not cool at all, right? And feeling, feeling fully convicted, I got my chores done and I walked over to Jim and I said, you better get your swimsuit on. And her face lit up and... So we just went through the sprinkler again and again and again, and it was freezing, and it put me behind the rest of the day, and I don't regret it for a second. It was probably my favorite moment of the week. Why is it so hard for us to do the things that are best for us? Well, it's because we're sinners, right? And this constantly displays our great need for Jesus. We hear at FBN or overtly, publicly, and unashamedly at Jesus' church. 
Right? You come here, we're going to tell you about Jesus. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to sing to Jesus. We're going to worship Jesus. We're going to point you to Jesus. We're going to make a, as big a deal of Jesus Christ as we possibly can. And we, we're going to do this for many reasons. But these three at the top of the list. Number one, exalting Jesus Christ is what God and all of heaven have been doing for all time. So we want to join God in that work. Number two, exalting Jesus will be what we do for all eternity. So why not start now? And number three... We know and believe that the more and more and more we get of Jesus Christ, the better off all of us are. Only Jesus can save. Only Jesus can forgive you of your sins. Only Jesus took your place on the cross. Only Jesus rose from the dead. Only Jesus is your true purpose for living. And having Jesus in his rightful place not only secures your eternity, but gives you the most fulfilled and abundant life now. And we've been going through the book of John together as a church since last September. And we just finished John chapter 10. And in that chapter, Jesus has some really important things to say about himself. John chapter 10 verse 14 says this. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep, and I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there should be one flock and one shepherd. And the reason my father lo- loves me is that I laid down my life only to take it up again. Earlier in that chapter, Jesus says about his sheep in verse 10, that I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And what happened there is that Jesus picked up on an image that God uses throughout the Bible, right? Whenever God places someone in authority, he commands them to serve and lead and love and act like shepherds. And we don't have time today to go over all the different places that God puts humans in authority, but for each one that he does, he calls them to be shepherds. And what Jesus is claiming in John 10 was that he was the good shepherd. And he's the good shepherd because he's the greatest authority in the universe. He's the good shepherd also because of how he shepherds. He loves his sheep. He protects them. He leads them. And he laid down his life for them. He's the good shepherd because of how he herds us and directs us. He leads us to the most fulfilled and abundant life possible, he says. He's the good shepherd because he always works for our good. And so in God's design for the good of humanity, he calls human authorities to be shepherds as well. These are governmental authorities, church leaders, parents, fathers, husbands. They are to be under shepherds, right? Where they take their lead and command from Jesus, but what they shepherd, but then they shepherd those that God has put into their care the way that Jesus shepherds us. And this applies to coaches and teachers and small group leaders. This really applies to any position where you have responsibility and influence and are charged with caring and training others. God wants you to fulfill that position by acting like a shepherd. Now, some people have pushed back on this analogy in our day because if you look around, there's less shepherds roaming around. That that, that profession's kind of gone by the wayside. And so they say this image isn't as clear and understandable as it once was, to which I respectfully disagree. Because we aren't called to shepherd like a literal sheep farmer. We're called to shepherd like the good shepherd, Jesus. And the Bible shows us plenty of ways that he loved, that he was selfless, how he led, how he served, how he taught, how he cared for and protected his sheep. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing to this group of believers in Ephesus. And towards the end of the book, he turns his attention to their relationship with one another. And so towards the end of this book, he's going to address their home life and their marriages and their children. He's going to address their work life. He's going to address how they should treat one another. And in verse 21, he starts the whole section by telling them in Ephesians 5, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
Paul's telling his readers there, before he tells them how God designed marriage and how God designed family, how God designed work, that the attitude that will make all of God's designs possible is one of submission. That we are to submit to Jesus first, we are to recognize his authority, and then we are to submit to each other as well. In Philippians, he writes simply, in humility, value others as better than yourself. And so I'm going to request that we do that as a church this morning, right? We're going to look at God's design for families, and we don't normally do this, right? We don't normally break from our series to have a sermon match a holiday like Father's Day, I'll be honest, but I just felt like God was saying even weeks ago that as a church we needed to go through this today. And if our attitude this morning is one that is out of reverence for Jesus, this will go better, right? Because some of God's design will seem very countercultural to our day. And if this is new to some of you, your first reaction might be one, a, a negative reaction. But, but what I'm asking is this, just hear it out, right? And there'll be some who hear God's design for marriage and family and realize that it does not match their experience at all. And it may cause you to be discouraged. And I want you to know it's not our goal to discourage anyone today. In fact, I want you to encourage, I want to encourage all of you to pursue God's design for your family. And so what we want to do is offer you hope at the end of the day and also ourselves in this place. And our heart is this. We want FBN to be a place where marriages are strong, where kids are growing in the knowledge of the Lord, where wives are encouraged and husbands are shepherds. And we want to do whatever we can to help make that reality possible in your home. And so if it ever seems rough today, hang in there. And if you need extra support, if you need extra help on this front, come to us. We want to be there for you in this. In this section, Ephesians 5 and 6, Paul addresses Christian marriages first, and then he moves on to the family. And so he starts with wives. Look at Ephesians 5, verse 22. <clears throat> he writes, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Now, verse 22 has a really important distinction there. Right? It tells us that wives should submit to their husbands as you do to the Lord, right? which makes all this possible. Right? This is, again, why this all comes down to the good shepherd. Right? Because when you see Jesus as your authority in your life and you submit to his leading in this life, then everything else that you read here actually becomes easier. If Jesus is the authority in your life and his word tells you to submit to the authority that God has given your husband, then you do it because he's king. Jesus, that is, not your husband. Let's clear that up. Your husband's never king, okay? But verse 23 tells us that God has established men to be the spiritual authority in the home. Right? For men, this means that you are charged with loving headship. So in God's design, men are to set the spiritual direction of the home. Men are to be the shepherds of their home. Men are to seek out and discover the needs of his wife and the needs of his children and go to work in meeting and providing for those needs regardless of what they are. Men are to establish an environment of nurturing and protecting and are to create a home where his wife and his children can be everything that God has created them to be. And in this, the man is to be the most selfless person in the home. And we often talk about how selfless wives and mothers are and it's because they are, they're amazing at it. But the Bible is clear. Men, you don't get to take a pass on this. God calls you to lead the way in selflessness. Now, the woman's role in marriage and family is to come alongside him and be, him, be his helper in all those areas. And just in case you think that role sounds demeaning, God himself in the Bible, God calls himself our helper. 
And so in granting that to women, he's elevating them to a role that, on, that is only suited for him and them. And this is very much to be a partnership. Marriage is very much a give and take, hand in hand, working together relationship. A wife is not only to support her husband, she's also to partner with him. She's to join him in shepherding their children and pointing them to the Lord. Because marriage can be hard and raising kids makes it harder. So it's incredibly important, right, that the husband and wife work together, that they have the same goals, that they help each other. But in that, when it comes to the spiritual direction of the home, when it comes to things that will change the lives of everyone in the home and where they worship, when it comes to following God's lead, then God says the man will have to answer to him for those. And the wife is called to submit to that headship. And please, wives out there, ask the Lord to help you against fighting and resisting against this. If you're a woman and you want to be the one who controls everything, especially your husband, and you find some level of pride in that, this is actually to you and your family's detriment. I mean, I'll tell you, one of the most powerful things you have, wives, is your, is your tongue. With your words, and just with your words, right, you can build up your husband and make him feel like he's the most impressive thing in your life, even if you know he isn't, right? And also with your words, you can crush him and break his spirit. I mean, with just a few words, you have that ability. Choose your words carefully in your marriage. When you demean your husband, you're hurting yourself. When you complain and criticize to him or about him, you're damaging his soul in a way that will negatively impact your life and your children's lives. In fact, I want you, I want you to see this. This is, the, what, this is in the book of Proverbs, same chapter, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 9, first says, better to live on the corner of a roof than to share a house with a nagging wife. Then 10 verses later, Solomon, he just goes back to it. It says, better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. That, that's in the Bible, right? That's God looking down on a man whose wife is always criticizing him and nagging him, saying, bro, that's, that's worse than living in the attic. That's worse than going out in the desert by yourself. Right, wives, you, you don't want a man who thinks it would be a relief to get away from you. That is not the picture of a godly marriage. That is damage to both of your souls. Whenever you submit to God's design for marriage, everyone is better off. Because he has set the family up in a way that would be best for you. Here's what Warren Wearsby, that's a hard name today. Here's what Warren Wearsby wrote about this. True spiritual submission is the secret of growth and fulfillment. He said, when a Christian woman is submitted to the Lord and to her own husband, she experiences a release and fulfillment that she can have in no other way. This mutual love and submission creates an atmosphere of growth in the home that enables both the husband and the wife to become all that God wants them to be. See, the result of following God's design for your home should be harmony. The, the two of you should seek after the Lord together. You should pray together. You should both be in the word. And husband and wife work best when they're on the same page. And what I mean by that, that page is this. Jesus is our Lord and we are seeking his will for our marriage, his will for our home, his will for our career and our children and our calendar and our finances and our everything. And we're already not being politically correct, okay? So let's just jump in deeper. Right? This design that we find here is why it's so important for a follower of Christ to marry another follower of Christ. The Bible says in Corinthians that marriage should not be entered into unequally yoked. It's simple that God's design simply cannot work if both husband and wife haven't submitted to the lordship of Jesus in their life. And this 
shouldn't be shocking, right? How can a wife submit to her husband like she submits to the Lord if she's never submitted to the Lord? How could a husband ever love his wife like Jesus loves the church if he doesn't know Jesus or his church? It's just not possible. Now, if someone is married, if, if after someone's married, a husband or wife accepts Jesus Christ, then 1 Corinthians 7 tells us they are to stay married as long as the other spouse wants to. In fact, it says that the unbelieving spouse has been sanctified by their spouse's belief. And so the hope is there that they too will come to know Jesus as their husband or wife has. But that's for marriages that are already in place. And so I'm going to address the singles for a minute here, or those of you who are still shepherding singles. Given that human beings have never been able to control their heart or their emotions, if you're a follower of Christ, you simply should not date someone who isn't. Now, grace has overcome in the past, but in far many other circumstances, this has caused long-term ramifications. And I was young once. In fact, I think I can still remember part of it. Okay, and what I remember about being young is the feeling of being invincible. That it doesn't matter the risk, right? It doesn't matter the odds. Nothing will get to you. You're going to beat the odds. It's going to work out for you no matter what. And what I'm telling you this morning is that you are not invincible. That God has set up his design for marriage and the home for a reason. And if you're going to give your heart to anyone, the goal, the, their, their goal needs to be to submit to that design with you. So how can you even entertain the idea of entering into marriage, the deepest and most intimate relationship there is humanly, with one who doesn't even understand the most important thing about you? And I know that when I say that now and in the next service, there's going to be singles with some of the pushback that's going to be flaring in their head. You ladies, you're thinking, oh, you don't understand. I'll fix them. No, you won't. You don't have that power. You might be thinking, you don't, you don't know how, he's a really good guy. I, I don't doubt that. He probably is, but it's irrelevant if he doesn't know Jesus. Are you guys thinking, I'm, I'm crazy about her. You don't know how pretty she is. Maybe you're right. Maybe she's super hot. But time is undefeated. Always. Age and gravity wins. And then what? You say, well, I, you don't understand. There's no one else like her. Let's be honest. There is someone else like her. I know everyone's made unique of God, but there's like six billion people on this earth. She doesn't stand out that much. You see, the single most important factor in deciding who you date as a follower of Jesus is this. Do they love Jesus and will they help me follow him more completely and more closely? Everything else pales in comparison to the importance of that. Listen, all that was just for free this morning. I just threw that in there, all right? So back to Ephesians and God's design for marriage. There are a lot of people who don't like this design. Let's be honest. There are a lot of women who have trouble with this design when they first hear it. And of course, because the guys are like, she's to submit to me? Yeah, I'm good with that. Well, there's just one problem with that attitude. And the problem is that Paul kept writing. Look at verse 25. He writes, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife 
must respect her husband. The first thing I noticed there in that section on husbands is that it's a lot longer than the section on wives. Men, that's our first clue that this isn't going to be easy. Right, and it starts out okay, right? He tells us that we are to love our wives, and I know how the male brain works. Some of you heard that and thought, love her? Done. Wouldn't have married her if I didn't love her, nailed it. Right? You're looking for high fives to the other guys around you. But the problem is, again, it continues. We are to love our wives, the Bible says, as Christ loved the church. Now, for the rest of this section, Paul continues this image that the Christian marriage is an illustration of Jesus in his church, where the wife plays the role of the church, and as the church submits to its shepherd Jesus, she submits to the headship of her husband, but the husband plays the role of Jesus. And when I say that, I'm, I'm not talking about the walking on water, power over the grave, telling storms to cease, greatest authority in the universe, Jesus. He's the only one who gets that. What we are to do is we are to play the role of Jesus as the good shepherd. The Jesus that was perfect in all the ways he related to and dealt with others. The Jesus that was always gracious. The Jesus that was not one time selfish. The Jesus that always cared for others first, always put others first. The Jesus that protected his church, that fed his church, leads and cares for his church. The Jesus that died for his church and loved his church more than he loved himself. Your wife, as she submits to you, should feel like she's married to that guy. Still think this is easy, guys? And then we get a breakdown of how a man should shepherd his wife. First, we're told that he is to love her sacrificially. Just as Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her, that is how a husband is to love his wife. So in your eyes, men, she is to be more valued than you. Her needs mean more to you than your own. Her wants mean more to you than your own. You are to wring yourself out for her. You work for her. her. You put yourself in danger so that she won't have to. You are to love her in a way that costs you time. You are to love her in a way that costs you money. You are to love her in a way that means that you pursue your interests and your hobbies less. Because you sacrifice for her constantly. This is what God demands of you as the shepherd of your home. We're also told that you are to love your your wife with a holy love. Verse 26 says that you are to love her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And anytime you read the word holy in the Bible, it means this. It means to be set apart. It means to be unique and distinct. And so in marriage, the husband is to be set apart only for his wife. And the wife is to be set apart only for her husband. And so there are levels of intimacy, both all, all physically, emotionally, and spiritually, that are only to be experienced in the confines of a marriage. There are parts of your body, there are parts of your heart, there are parts of your soul and your mind that are be set apart only for your husband or your wife. And any interference with this is, is a departure from God's design and it's sin. And it's probably no surprise to most of you that any affair outside of marriage or any sexual activity before marriage is a break from God's design and it's sin. But physically is not the only way to be set apart. There are emotional levels, there are emotional, there's emotional intimacy that should be only shared with your spouse or someone who you're absolutely certain will be your spouse. Right? There are depths to your soul that should only be known by the one who's married to you. It was, it was my parents who brought me into this world. It was my parents who raised me. They shepherded me into adulthood. And there are things about me now that they don't know that my wife does. There are aspects of who I am that only Corinne and Jesus knows, and that's the list. 
And that's the way it should be. The husband-wife relationship is to be sanctified. It's to be set apart. It's to be unique and holy. It's to be protected. We're told in that verse that Christ cleansed his church by his word. A husband does well when he loves his wife in a way that cleanses her by bringing her closer to Jesus. Then the husband is to love his wife in a way that provides for her. Look at verse 28. It says, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. Now listen, when I say that a husband is to provide for his wife, I'm not saying that the husband is to make the most money. Right? Men, you absolutely need to work. Okay, that, that's, that's a no-doubter in the Bible, right? Work was given to men in the Garden of Eden before sin even entered into the equation. A lazy and idle man does, makes, does not make a good husband or father. Right? Well, listen, if your wife's pulling in the goods, then good for both of you, Okay? So when I say provision, right, a husband needs to provide for his wife in this way. He needs to provide for his wife by making himself an expert of her needs and then going to work on meeting those needs. Study your wife. Study what she needs. Study what, 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 what fulfills her. And guys, it may come down to you simply asking your wife from time to time, what do you need from me that you aren't getting? What are you longing for that, that, I, that I haven't been providing in this home? And then whatever she tells you, get to it. Husbands should always fuel the gifts of their wives. If there's something that she's passionate about and you're not, you should still do what you can to make sure that she can pursue that passion. Find out what creates a spark in her, what excites her, what she's good at, and then carve out time in your schedule where you watch the kids or find childcare so that she can do it. Financially, within reason that the Lord's leading, purchase things that will help her do what God has put her on this earth to do. Create an environment in your home where she can be who God has intended her to be. And listen, guys, I, I, I got to tell you, she wants this more than you know. God has actually designed your wife in a way to desire and crave and need a husband who loves her in these ways. And so if you love her in this way, she'll have zero problem submitting to your headship. Because she will know that she is loved, that she is safe, that she is cared for and protected and provided for and nurtured. Someone once told me, you can always tell when a woman is loved just by her countenance. So just by the way that she carries herself and the way her face lights up, you know her husband loves her well. Make it the aim of your marriage that your wife is a woman who is loved well. And then Paul addresses the family as a whole. Look at the start of chapter 6. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life on the earth. One of the greatest needs of human beings is authority. Now we rebel against this, we rebel against this constantly, but human beings need authority to thrive. And God has arranged it so that when children are brought into this world, they have parents who are to shepherd them and be the first authority in their life. And so one of the first and most important skills a child can learn is submission and obedience to authority. So Paul writes here that children should obey their parents in the Lord. So this is a double submission. The reason that you obey your parents is because you are obeying Jesus when you do. Young men and women who are followers of Christ should lead the way in submission to their parents because in doing so they are submitting to Christ. And Paul says that they should do this because, first, it's a, because it's right, and then he quotes the fifth commandment, the Ten Commandments. And it was the first commandment, he says, with a promise attached. 
honor your father and mother so that it may go well with you. That sounds good. And that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Now, this is not saying that anyone who died young didn't obey their parents, okay? But this is the idea. The idea is that submission to the authority of your parents will ultimately result in avoiding sin and therefore the consequences and dangers of sin. A life lived in submission to your parents is likely a life that has less self-inflicted wounds in it. And it's not mere obedience that God lays on the child here, but honor. To honor is to obey, yes, but it's also to respect and to love. To honor is to bring honor to them in their presence and more so when they're not around. So teens and young people, do you bring honor to your parents by your behavior and your example when you're away from them? Do you respect them, submit to them when you're around them? Do you obey them? It's what God calls you to here. And this is an incredibly important skill because when young children learn to submit to their parents, it prepares them to live as one under submission to Jesus when they're older because they know how to do that. But in this shepherding role, there's a warning here for dads as well. In the next verse, and we can include moms in this warning. Look at verse 4. It says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Right, so we have a warning and a command in that verse. The warning is, do not exasperate your children. Now that word there in the Greek literally means to provoke, okay, to, to cause despair, to, to lead to anger. It's basically the opposite of encourage. So if you are inconsistent or you are unfair or you're overly harsh in the discipline of your children, you're provoking them to anger. If you say one thing and then do another, you're leading them to disappointment. If you're overly aggressive towards them, you discourage them, right? If you lord over them, you're not shepherding as Jesus shepherds. They need discipline, yes, but they need discipline from a steady, loving hand under which they always feel safe. We must treat our children with respect as we shepherd and discipline them. Explain the discipline and the need behind it. Be consistent. Stay calm when it's possible. And make sure you see their problems as real problems because then they are. I've used this point before. I'm going to use it again. No one has a better life than my five-year-old. I'm convinced of it. Right? She hasn't yet been to school, so she's never had any homework or any responsibilities. She gets every single one of her meals and snacks made for her. She, someone else has bought all her clothes. Someone else drives her to wherever she needs to go. Someone else arranges everything for her. Right? Her life is perfect, yet Her problems, as silly as they seem to me, drive her to tears way more than my problems do. She cries at least ten times a day. I only cry like eight. And it does her no good if I'm dismissive of her or what breaks her heart. So we exasperate our children when we do not give them the honor of our time and attention. Parents, if the whole time you're at home, you're staring at your phone or at the TV, you're, you're punting on this calling. We encourage our children when we come down to their level for just a little bit. I, I got a, dads of young children, I've got this practice. If you don't believe me, just try this exercise out. When you get home, either today or you get home from work tomorrow, just sit down in the middle of the floor and wait. Don't do anything else with that. Just sit down in the middle of the floor and wait, and you'll see how much of a magnet you are to your kids. They're going to be hanging all over you in a matter of minutes, if not less. We are not to discourage, we're not to exasperate, we're not to provoke our children, but here's what we are to do, the Bible says. We are to bring our children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. 
Deuteronomy 6, when Moses handed the Israelites the law, he told them to do several things with it. He said they were to impress it on their hearts. They were to talk about it constantly as they went through their life. And they were to teach God's law to their children. Psalm 78, we're told that God has designed it so that each generation of his people would would disciple their children and teach them about God so that when they got older, they would teach their children the same things as well and on and on and on. All Christians are given the commandment to go and make disciples. And parents, I'm telling you now, discipleship takes time, it takes investment, it takes love, it's a lot of hard work, and the people that you have the most time with, the people that you invest the most in, and the people you love the most are your children. And so in God's eyes, there is simply no excuse for a parent not to train up their child in the things of the Lord. I grew up in church, yes. I had a pastor that I respect immensely. I, have a youth pa- I had a youth pastor that I connected with. I've had speakers I've been drawn to and listened to their sermons. I've had mentors and professors and teachers. But no humans on this planet impacted my spiritual life more than Micah Marla Parks. And that's how God designed it. And man, I want nothing more than for my girls to be able to say the same one day. Psalm 127 says that our children are a gift from the Lord. And it says they are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. And arrows eventually are to be sent. It's not the design of an arrow to be kept in the quiver forever. Arrows are first protected, then sharpened, and then shot out. And parents, one of the greatest callings in your life is this, that you will one day send your children out into this world as warriors for the kingdom of Jesus, as ones whose hearts belong to him first and as those who have been prepped to make a difference for him in this life. There is simply no other aim in parenting higher than this one. There is no other goal in parenting that should replace this one. And just by mere math, you're discipling your children. Whether you realize it or not, you are training them. You are showing them what really matters. You're showing them what to value. One of the scariest things is this. Our children will turn out like us in some way. And so are you showing them that the kingdom of God is the most important? Have you arranged your time in a way that gives him first priority or has another pursuit replaced Jesus in your family's life? This is your first calling as a parent. You point your child to the supremacy of Jesus above everything else. Listen, I've gone too long, too long already. I've barely scratched the surface, but there are a couple things of encouragement I want to hand to you today. Number one is this. What the Bible has for us here, what the Bible hands us here in Ephesians, is God's design for marriage and family. And in telling, this, telling us that, what we just read and studied is the ideal setup. Let's be honest about that. It has two loving parents in a committed marriage with children. And let's be honest this morning. The ideal doesn't always exist, does it? Now you must know that since this is God's design, we will always push and plead and try and help you get as much of this in your life and in your marriage as possible. But you must also know this today, especially if you've spent the last 30 minutes in despair. Because what you're reading is nothing like what your experience is. That wherever the ideal is lacking, there is always grace. And grace covers all. God presents us with the ideal in his word, not just so that we have something to strive for, but so that we would run to him. I'll admit to you this, this sermon was really hard to write because it was like a big mirror showing me all the things that I'm getting wrong at home. That's not a fun process. This is hard. Let's not act like it isn't. 
And when we fail, and we will fail, our proper response isn't discouragement or apathy. No, we run to the feet of Jesus, we ask him to forgive us, and we ask him to help us do this. Especially dads, man, you need to lead the way in apologizing and asking our wives and children for forgiveness. Because whenever we do that, we are showing them a living example of the gospel. And for those out there this morning whose setup is less than ideal, the best you can do is go to Jesus for your hope and your strength as well. The single mom, the abandoned mom, the mom forced to be the spiritual leader because she has an apathetic husband, all this, doing all that she can is, is to read this and run to Jesus and ask for his grace to fill the gaps for her family. The person whose father is no longer here, the one who's never had a relationship with their father, is to experience Father's Day wrapped in the embrace of their heavenly father who will never leave them or forsake them and who will wipe every tear from their eyes. The parents who simply can't believe how wrong they've gotten it with their kids can turn to Jesus who doesn't just give us second chances but third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and so on. What I'm telling you is to fight for the ideal. Fight to line up as best you can with God's design, but also lean into Jesus and let his grace fill the gaps. As long as it is possible, you ask God to help you shape and form your home the way he has designed it, and then you trust him for all the rest. With that in mind, I want you to hear this verse from Hebrews 12. Right, Hebrews 12, uh, verses 9 and 10 says this, Moreover, we all had human fathers who disciplined us, And we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Now listen, the main point of that passage is is about submitting to the discipline that God brings in our lives. But right there in that passage, there's an admission that gives me hope. It says that our earthly fathers, it says that our mothers, even the best ones, Discipline and led us and served us as they thought best. That's God saying, they tried. It was cute. They, they gave it their best. It's not God saying it was perfect. It's not God even saying that they knew what they were doing. It's him saying they tried their best. And then the next two words are this. But God. But God who always works for our good. The God who will cover the gaps for us, for all us imperfect parents. God who will drape us with grace for all our imperfect children. God who will strengthen and maintain all our imperfect marriages. God, his grace revealed to us in his son Jesus. That is our hope. Listen, you won't get this perfect. You won't even get it right. You will mess up. But there is one who is perfect. And he's waiting on all who call on him with grace and mercy and forgiveness. And that is why he is our good shepherd. Because he shepherds us while we shepherd those he gives us. And so fathers and mothers and children and singles and widows and divorcees and and single parents and grandparents and all. the, the, The call is this, lean into Jesus. Trust him with your life. Trust him with your family. Trust him with what he's called you to do. And bank on his grace to come through for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you established the institution of marriage and family. We thank you that it it meant enough to you that you have set apart a very uh, particular, very, very scripted design for how this should go. 
And Lord, we know that when we submit to that design, when we follow that design, it is always for our best. And so God, I pray for those who, who have all the, all the pieces in place that, they could, that this could be what their home looks like. This could be um, how this could, could function and set up in their lives. But, but so far, they just haven't submitted to it. God, we pray that they would repent. They would find the grace and forgiveness of Jesus this morning. They would seek your help into arranging their home and arranging their marriage and arranging their family in the way that you've set it up. And God, we pray for those who read these passages and say, that's not even possible for my situation. The, the ideal couldn't ever exist. So God, we pray for a special means of grace for them today. Lord, that, that, that you would be their helper, that you would be their provider, that you would come and fill all the gaps that some human has abdicated their responsibility on. And they would find their hope in you. And God, we ask all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.